Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 15. Luke 15, if you're still learning your way around the Bible, there's an Old Testament that starts with Genesis and a New Testament that starts with Matthew. Luke is in the New Testament. It's the third book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And so Luke was a doctor. He was a physician, and he became a Christ follower. And so he was alive at the time, you know, of Jesus' ministry and that type of thing. And so he became a Christ follower, and he began to sit down and talk with different disciples, different apostles, different people that had witnessed things. And he writes this account of what took place with Jesus, you know, regarding his birth, regarding, you know, his ministry, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And so, you know, he's very detailed in his account. And so he starts with this very first verse here, Luke 15, verse 1, says this, says tax collectors and other notorious, everybody say notorious, notorious. and other notorious sinners. I don't know about, man, there have been times in my life I've been a notorious sinner. People have known what I've done that was not okay. And other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Now, I know I do this every time I come across this, but it just rocks me. It's just so powerful when you think about that, when it says that tax collectors and notorious sinners came to hear Jesus teach. And it says often, they did it a lot. Really, it's kind of like they said that people that were really nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And so tax collectors was such a big deal because in their culture, as we've said before, that they collected money. They were Jews that collected money from their own people, the Jewish people, and then gave it to the Romans so that they, their own, they were forcing their own people to fund Rome's occupation of Judea. So you can imagine, man, how they, they viewed them as traitors. Even the religious people would, you know, didn't want them around the synagogues, man. They were, they were despised. And then there were people that weren't tax collectors, but the only way they could describe them was notorious sinners. In other words, they were known for the bad stuff that they did. And guess what? They liked being around Jesus. Isn't that cool? I don't know, there's something about that. So, so it goes on to say that they often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees, who were like the religious leaders of the day, and teachers of religious law so excited that people that were nothing like Jesus would come and hang out with him. They were like, this is the best thing ever. No, that's not what it says. It says this. It says, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he, Jesus, was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So, man, it just, it twisted the religious people to no end. Like, you're not only hanging out with them, you're eating them, which was, you know, when you sit down and have a meal with somebody, there's something kind of intimate and connecting about that. It's different than just kind of showing up at the same place. It's Jesus saying, I want to, he told Matthew when Matthew was still a tax collector, hey, I'm going to your house. And so when he goes to Matthew's house, Matthew invites his friends. Well, guess who his friends are? They're not the religious people. It described the people that showed up there as other tax collectors and notorious sinners. And yet this guy's so impacted by being in Jesus' presence, he becomes one of Jesus' followers and writes an account. He writes one of the Gospels. The first one, the book of Matthew, was written by this guy that was anything but religious. And so the religious people were complaining. They didn't get it. Why is he doing this? Why is he hanging out with them? And so as a result of this, Jesus told them this story. If a man has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, because I found my lost sheep. 
In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are religious and haven't strayed away. In other words, he said, man, when somebody that was lost comes home, heaven has a party. It's like, yes. We'll talk about this in a few weeks when we talk about the father. But the truth matters, you know, sometimes people are hesitant to turn their hearts towards God because they're like, God's probably mad at me and angry. No, no, no. There's a celebration when you come home. I mean, heaven rejoices. They're, you know, they're like, you know, party poppers, streamers, whatever else takes place. Anyway, so he goes on to say, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I lose stuff, and actually there are times like I, I, may, I may say to my wife, like, hey, babe, I don't know where so-and-so is. And she'll say this a minute. I don't know why. I trust me. She goes, oh, did you lose it? And I'm like, no, I didn't lose it. I just don't know where it is. Okay. So. So, you know, I mean, you know, let's, let's wait, let's work our way up to an argument. Don't get me there real quick. And so, so, you know, we'll begin to look and sometimes, man, you probably, you probably never do this, but sometimes I find myself like, God, please help me find this. Has anybody here besides me ever prayed that they would find something? You know, Lord, please help me find those keys. God, please help me remember where I left that kid. You know I mean? It's just kind of, <laughs> just kind of wondering, you know, about different things and stuff like, you like, where, where is this? And man, and then when I find it, I'm like... Yes. And then I'm apologizing to my wife. I'm sorry I got mad and I blamed you. You clearly did not put it in my pants pocket. I put it there myself, you know. So, so you know, you, you have that moment. But, I mean, Jesus is comparing those moments where you know, we're like, I, I thought this was lost, but I found it. Now, excited we get, he was comparing that to the life of a human being. It's been misplaced. Lost. And then... They discover this relationship with God that Jesus has given the opportunity and availability for. And he said, heaven is like, yes. And so he's speaking to two groups of people, those that feel displaced by the religious community and the religious community, those that want to keep the displaced ones at an arm's length. So he's comparing that. And so he tells them both of these stories, but then to make a point further, it says this. It says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. Or he was talking to the tax collectors, the notorious sinners, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. He was telling them this story to share something with them. So it says, he told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide the wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. Everybody say distant land. To move to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. So, you know, last week we talked about the younger son and that what he did, you know, when he said to his father, I want my share of my inheritance now, of my estate now, that it was really, you know, it was really his way of saying in their culture, it was as if he was saying to his father, you're not dying fast enough. I'm not willing to wait on your demise or your departure physically. I want my inheritance now. And so the father gives it to him. 
And as we talked about last week, you know that in their culture that the older brother would get two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger brother would get a third of it. And so he walks away with a third of the estate. And so, and again, they didn't have their treasures and stocks and bonds. Back then their wealth was measured in land, livestock, things like that. So in order, in order for the father to be able to give his younger son his, a third of his inheritance, he probably had to liquidate some things. He had to sell his land, sell some of his, you know, livestock and that type of thing. In other words, you know, wealth that had probably been accumulated through generations that this younger brother had wiped out a third of it in a moment with his own selfishness. And it says this, that, that he said, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so it says a few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted, everybody say wasted, wasted all his money in wild living. So the perspective from the distant land, what takes place in the distant land? You know, what, what happens in the distant land? Well, for one thing, you know, the distant land, the reason why it was distant was because he moved as far away from his father's influence as he possibly could. He no longer wanted to be, you know, in his father's presence. We talked about last week how he wanted his father's stuff, but not his father's presence. And so, you know, so he moved, it was distant because he, he moved as far away as he could from his father's house. And he took his father's wealth, a third of his father's wealth with him. And it says that he wasted it there. He wasted it. One word that's used there in the Greek, it literally means to scatter it. It was scattered. He scattered it. And, and even the word that's used here, that typically they would use the word inheritance, but they used a different word in describing this in the story, that the word that was used, that's translated there, you know, to the things that his father had, that for them in their culture, inheritance meant that you had a responsibility to defend and protect that inheritance, not just for yourself, but for your family and for generations to come. But because that was not the younger son's intent, they didn't use that word to describe it. It was a different word. that they, they, It had only been used once in the New Testament in this setting. And it was that word because it was describing that that was not the son's intent. His intent was to take it and use it all for himself, all on his own. And so the distant land, we get a picture of this. If you're taking notes, some of this, the, 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 to, you know, to see from a distant land, it's this. It's, it's where I'm the center of my world. Whenever I'm in the distant land, it means that in that point in my life, that it's all about me. That I'm, I'm willing to, to sacrifice relationships I have. I'm indifferent to how it impacts other people. I shouldn't do what I want to do. Now, you know, the reality of it is, is that there could be seasons in anybody's life where you're completely in the distant land. But, but even if that's not the case, I know in my own world, in my own life, there have been times that... Parts of my life are in a good place, but different parts of my life are in the distant land. In other words, it's like, I, you know, I've talked about this before, giving God access to so much of my life and yet having a few things where I'm like, I'm good. I, I got this. No, 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 you stay over there. No, no, don't, don't get any closer. This is mine. Don't look here. Because I, I want to be as far away from his influence and his presence and his voice in that place because I want to use it for my own purposes. I want to do what I want to do regardless of what he thinks. And you think about this son and their culture, for him to just be so indifferent to his father and break his father's heart and come up to him and tell him, I want, I want what's mine now. Before you die, I want it now. And then his father liquidates a third of their estate 
their generational wealth, and the son takes it away from the family where his father or his brother or nobody else ever has access to it again, and he uses it for just what he wants. He didn't become a philanthropist. He wasn't in that distant land making people's lives better. He, waste, he wasted it. He scattered it in so many things that were just about him and who he was. Can I tell you this, man? In certain areas of my life, I've been that guy. There have been things in, in different, you know, different times, you know, different things, sometimes dealing with my family, sometimes dealing with my wife, sometimes dealing with different things where just in that moment or that season that I'm like, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do what I want. I don't care how much it hurts you or costs you. I'm, I'm going to do what I want. In that moment, man, I, I've just positioned myself in that area of my life as far away from the Father's influence as I possibly can because I don't want to do what he wants me to. That may not be you, but it's been me on more than one occasion. And so the land is that place of selfishness, of, dare I say, even like kind of being narcissistic, which just, it's just about me. I'll do what I want to do. I'll, I'll use what I want to use. I'll, and even later on, when his, and we'll talk about his older brother next week and his response, which wasn't good. But one of the things he pointed out about his younger brother, he said to his father, the reason why he's mad at him, he said, he's, he's wasted your money on, on prostitutes and wild living. I mean, everything that this guy did with his money, you know, he was even using people in the distant land, for, not for their benefit, but for his own purposes. And so that distant land, one of the, the you know, perspectives of being in the distant land is that it's the place where I've centered my world around me. What I want, what I want to see happen. And I'm indifferent to how it impacts you and what you want and what's best for you. I've made it about me. So the first perspective of the distant land is that it's where I'm the center of my world. Let, let's... let's uh, you know, let's keep reading here. And so the next verse, verse 14 says this, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one, everybody say no one, but no one gave him anything. They were in the distant land too. Don't get me. So he takes his father's living. Instead of, you know, he, he spends it on everything, on satisfying all of his appetites, everything he wants, indifferent to how it impacts, impacts his family, his father's future, his brother's future, and just, just on what he wants. And then eventually a famine hits and he has no resources, no treasure left. And so he has nothing left to do, but he begins to beg. And, you know, he goes from this, when he's at home, he's in a really wealthy place. But, you know, when he gets in this distant land, he spends everything he has. And now he has to resort to begging. He has to resort to begging, man. That's, that, you know, you talk about an incredible transition. And so eventually he persuades a farmer to hire him. The King James refers to the guy as a citizen of the distant land. In other words, the guy that he got the job from, this is, this is where he's decided to live. And so he gets this job, and as we talked about last week, 
you know, him being a Jew, one of the worst, most, you know, disgraceful things that could happen to a Jewish boy is to leave his home, to leave his father's care, his father's safety, and, and to hit, hit such bad luck that he ends up working for a Gentile. You say, what's a Gentile? Anybody's not Jewish. How do we know he's a Gentile? Because he's raising pigs, and Jews would have nothing to do with pigs. So he's working in that place, and that, again, like we talked about last week, he was so hungry that he, he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. And I'll say again, I have never been that hungry. I've seen what pigs eat. And it's nasty. I mean, it's, if you've ever seen a pig eat and you still eat bacon, which I do, it says something for how good bacon is. My brain is like, but you know what they eat? Shut up, brain. I'm eating bacon. You know what I mean? It's, so, so he has that moment. But the truth of the matter is, is that he's tried everything the distant land has to offer. He's used his wealth to experience anything he could conceive. He had no restrictions placed on him from his father. He'd moved as far away from his father's influence as he could. He had no restrictions placed upon about the community he was raised in. He was as far away from that as he could be. He did what he wanted to do. And then he ran out of stuff. But he still wasn't at a place where he's willing to go back home to his father's house. He still wasn't at a place of humility. Maybe, I don't know, maybe shame was keeping him from going there. Maybe he was embarrassed. And so he found a guy and the guy let him work for him. But it says this, that he worked for that guy. And that, but he said he was so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs, good to him, no one gave him anything. It says up, further up there that he began to starve. You know, there were things he could eat. He could, he could have gone in there and mixed it up with the pigs, but it would have been satisfying. It would have left him wanting, and at some point he would have realized, man, this is just disgusting. Why would I do this? Why am I connected to this? Now, the truth of the matter is, is what he discovered in the distant land is that it's where I experience the emptiness the world has to offer. It doesn't start out that way. You know, I'm sure at first, man, when he's throwing parties and all that kind of stuff, it's probably, there's probably days where he thought, this is everything I thought it would be. Nobody's telling me what to do. I'm doing what I want to do. I got all these friends around me. You know, I'm the place to go. If you want to have a party, I'm the place to go. I'm the place to show up at. And it was that way until he ran out. And so there are, Areas in my life, I can be in that distant land away from the Father's voice where I'm just doing what I want to do. And at times, man, in the, that beginning moment maybe in my marriage, you know, if I'm not being as loving to my wife as I should be or I'm not being as good to the people around me or, or I'm just, you know, if I want to get frustrated, I get frustrated. I'm not restraining myself. If somebody does something dumb, I tell them, hey, that was dumb without any kind of, and there's just, at times there's kind of like this liberty like, nobody tells me what to do. I'm doing what I want. But there comes a point in time where you go through all of that and eventually you get to the point where there's nothing. You're empty. And the things that used to feel like they satisfied or met that need, they begin to feel empty too. And the lie that this is better, I begin to recognize that being selfish is better than loving people in my life and serving them. 
that doing what I want to do is better than being concerned about you. That's the lie in the distant land. And we may never say that, but man, my actions have said it when I've done, when I've done what I wanted to do. So point number two is this, is that the distant land, the perspective of that, it's where I experience the emptiness the world has to offer. He could eat, but what was available made him feel empty. Let's finish with point three where he says this, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. It's wild that, that this son, when we look at his journey from the time that you know, we're introduced to him when he's old enough to talk to his father about his inheritance and tells him that he wants it. This father goes through this whole process of giving him a third, watching his son leave. Can you imagine as a parent how heartbreaking that would be? The son goes into the distant land. He spends everything he has. Then he tries to make it upon the resources that are there in the distant land, and he can't do it. Well, eventually at some point, man, he's probably alone with his thoughts. Maybe it's at night. He's probably thinking, or, and all of a sudden these thoughts begin to come to him. My father's so good that even at his house, even if they're not his son, if they just work for him, he's good to them. And I may have given up my right to be a son, but if I can at least work for him, I, I know he'll take care of me. And so it says that he returned home. And, and I was just looking at this. I, I, I really believe this, that as he began to have those thoughts, that true, some of those thoughts were based upon the experience that he had with his father. Things that he probably didn't notice while he was living there. Things that he took for granted. But also, I believe that it was probably greater than that. I believe that the things that his father said to him began to resonate in him again. You know, in, in my life at different times, and sometimes in, in just in my personal life, sometimes in my private life, sometimes in my marriage or dealing with different things that I found myself in that distant land kind of just doing what I want to do, indifferent to how it impacts somebody. And, and what's wild is, is that even in those moments, God still deals with me. I've shared with you before that there were two times, two different relationships in my life, uh, you know, uh, friendships, whatever, that I allowed myself to get bitter towards people. And they were totally unrelated issues. What's wild is they were totally unrelated, but they took place around the same time of life. And I remember, you know, I just, I'd been brought up in church, and I know everybody's got a different story. That may not be yours. That's okay. But I was brought up in church, and so, and I'd heard sermon after sermon on forgiving people. And so I, I kind of told myself, man, I'm, I'm going to always forgive people. I'm going to be able to do that. But there were these two different situations that just impacted me so much that at first, I, you know, I was kind of like, well, I, I'm going to forgive them and that type of thing. But they kind of stayed with me. And, and eventually, it, it was one of those things that I got, that became familiar. I, I began to be okay with them being there. With that unforgiveness, it turned into bitterness. And so 
I, in that bitterness, I became indifferent to what I did or to what I said that impacted either one of these individuals. I, I wouldn't resist my anger. If a door opened up and gave me an opportunity to tell them either one of them what I thought, I would seize it. I remember one time one of them had done something and my response was so harsh that they began to cry. And when my heart had been tender towards God and that would happen, that I would be like, I'm so sorry. But my heart had been so hardened by bitterness. My response was, that's how I felt. What you're feeling right now is how you've made me feel. There was no compassion, no mercy. And I kept telling myself I was justified because they'd hurt me. But I'd get alone, man, in the spirit of God, even though I was in the distant land. And on any other day, if I was in a healthy place, I would know that that's not okay. But I just, that bitterness, I'd allowed it to give me permission in how I dealt with them. That anger, I allowed it to give me permission in how I dealt with them. And so even in that moment, I remember that, you know, and no, nobody, if anybody was there, they couldn't tell because it didn't change my behavior in the moment. But in that moment, on the inside of me, God's presence was dealing with me, convicting me, saying to me, that's not okay. It's not okay. I wish I could tell you that I was smart enough to get it then, but no, man, I, I had to go to the place that eventually that I damaged those friendships and relationships to a point that there was really hardly anything left in either one of those situations to take from, to enjoy from, because I'd spent through whatever capital I'd had built up in that relationship. And in that place, it was such an empty place, such an angry place for me. And yet in that distant land, trying to be as far away from the Father's influence as I could. And sometimes I'd even get mad at God. If you would deal with him like you deal with me, I wouldn't be here. But that was just me pushing myself away from him. That in that moment, I could still sense him dealing with me. And at the point of where there seemed we were next to having nothing left, that all of a sudden, like the younger brother, I kind of came to myself and I thought, man, what's wrong with me? How did I get here? So far away from what I know is right. So far away from what I know God has called me to do and how he's called me to be. And I remember having to, to deal with that and come back home. You know, it began with coming back towards him, but it impacted those relationships as he restored those things. And, but I discovered this about the distant land that, yeah, man, the distant land, I, I'm, I'm the center of my world. I'm as selfish as can be. In the distant land, it's where I experience the emptiness the world has to offer me. What else I discovered about the distant land? That it's where the Father's voice still speaks to me. Even in that place, Psalm 139, David said this. He said, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. I discovered in that distant land, I couldn't escape his pursuit. 
his, or the things that he'd put into me. He didn't make me come back. But just his voice resonated in me in that place. And at some point, my life turned. How about you? Have you experienced that? Has it been you? Has it been me? And maybe, you know, as you look at your life, there may be so many areas of your life you're good in, and yet there could be an area of your life that you're in that distant land. Maybe, maybe in your profession you're doing exactly what you need to do, but maybe with your marriage that you've got it as far away from God as can be. Maybe in your marriage you're good, but the integrity that you work with is not in the place that it needs to be. You've kept that as far away from God because a lot of times we get there because we've been hurt and we justify our behavior because of how we've been treated or what's been done to us. But it's still in the distant land. I know from experience. And so God draws us back, not just because he wants to restore that, because he wants to restore us. We can't flee from his presence. I want you to do this. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute. I want us to spend a moment with God, you know, and, and you know, just there between you and him. Nobody knows what's going on on the inside of you, and they may not necessarily need to know. But just take this moment and just you and God have an honest conversation about your life. Let him speak to you about whatever it is that he wants to speak to you about. You know, and he's not just a corrector. He's an encourager too. I'm sure there'll be areas of your life where he'll speak to you and say, you're doing this so well. You're doing this so well. And even in his correction, it's not to condemn you. It's not to cause you to give up, but to rise up. So let's just spend a moment with God just in that secret place that only you and him know what's going on. Let's just talk to him for a minute.